Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Yeah, woo. I know, that was really heavy, right? Like, it's, you're feeling it right now. I want to start with a, a question, and I want you to ask this question and answer this question with the people that you're sitting around. So I'm going to give you like a minute to discuss this, but I want you to think back to your childhood for a moment. A lot of you are like, nope, don't ever want to think about that again. Um, it's okay. Uh, just what is something that you loved as a kid? that you don't love anymore. It could be a hobby, it could be a, a career choice you thought you were gonna get into, it could be you know, whatever, a, a, a movie, whatever. What was something that you were so into as a kid but you're just, it's like, nah, it's not really a thing for you anymore. Tell that to the person that you're, anyone that you're seated around. You got a minute, go. All right, you've just learned something about the person you're sitting next to that you did not know, hopefully. So this will be good. Um, Let's bring it back in. Okay, so we all probably have a thing, right? There's things, multiple things maybe that we loved as a kid that we're just not so much into anymore. For me, uh, it was golf. Uh, I played golf a lot as a kid. I know that's a little bit from a, on the sports spectrum. It's a little nerdy and not that impressive, but uh, I really liked golf, loved golf, played all the time, wanted to be a pro, used to take lessons to be a pro, like was all about it for a while. Um, I don't know if I think I discovered girls and then my golf thing went off the rails a little bit or something. I don't know. Uh, but I, I don't love it anymore. I played this week. I played golf this week and it was fun. It was awesome. It's great. I was like, oh, this is great. I don't need to do it again tomorrow. I don't need to, I, it's not something I need to do like every week or every day. Like it, the love I once had for that thing is gone. And it's like that with a lot of things, right? Um, I used to love to play soccer. Um, I would still probably love to play soccer, but my knees think that, every, that soccer's a bad idea. Uh, my body would be like, yeah, no, you shouldn't do that. It's not good at all, you know? So maybe, maybe the love was taken away from me. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it's like that sometimes. There are things that you're into that you're just not anymore. And most of the time, that's not a problem. It's like, okay, I went through a phase. I was into that. And now I'm not into that. But there are some things that you should maybe still love or you wish you did or you, you think, man, how do I get back to that place where I love that again like I used to? How do I, how do I rekindle the love? That's, maybe that's true of a career if you're in one or... or, or um, a hobby or something like that, but it's definitely true of a relationship, right? Like, I, man, I need to rekindle the love. I was, I was more into him or her or, or this person or this relationship before, and, and I think I need to get it back. I need to bring back the, the, the passion for it or whatever. Um, and so I want to talk about today how we might rekindle the love we once had and what is a love that is worth actually rekindling. And, I, and we're going we're gonna to start a new series today that I'm, I'm really excited about. We actually made a switch about two or three months ago of like, no, let's, let's do this series right now. Let's, let's talk about this because we had been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians and we will pick that back up in October. But we're going to break here for a few months and do, do something different. And particularly for this next seven weeks, I, I want to talk about... Um, the, the book of Revelation and the, the, the two chapters in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where there are some letters 
that are written to the, the seven churches um, that, that uh, there's like these seven churches and there's letters written to them. And I think um, as we read these letters, I think you're going to hear some things that are, are pretty challenging to, to our modern ears, to the culture that we live in. Yes, they were written to churches that existed in a very different culture 2,000 years ago. But honestly, the problems that they were dealing with then are still the things that we deal with now in a lot of cases. Um, and there's a lot of overlap between their struggles and our struggles. And so this stuff still ends up being very relevant. And so I want to get into it. We're going to do a series called Seven. And we're going to look at the seven churches of Revelation and, and what we can learn as the church now trying to survive in the culture that we're in. And I want to let you know right up front, and I, and I think... This will be true for all of us. If you're not a follower of Jesus in this room, if you're like, I'm just checking out this church thing, I don't know. Um, I think there will be really good things in this series for you, but let me just tell you right up front, this will be very challenging stuff. There will be things in here that make you uncomfortable. There will be things I say today that will make you uncomfortable, and then you'll go to lunch and you'll be like, what was that, you know, right? Like, I get that, and I want to be clear about that up front. I'm going to say uncomfortable things, unpopular things, throughout this series because the scripture does that and it pushes us and it challenges us and it speaks against some of the things that we believe and maybe hold dear in our culture. Um, I, I came across this German word. So you know how there are really long words in German? And you know how in German they can express a thought in one word that's like all this complicated thought all in one word? Like you've probably heard of Schadenfreude, right? You've heard of that one. That is the feeling you get when, like, it's, it's almost like that friend who called you, you, you catch up with a friend you haven't seen in years, and she used to have all the success in the world and was awesome, and you felt not awesome, and then she calls you, and you catch up after years, and she's like, things are going terrible for me, and you get off the phone with her, and that, you know that little part of you that feels good that she's finally suffering? That's schadenfreude. There's a German word for that, of, of the feeling you have when you rejoice a little bit in someone else's suffering. We're not proud of it, but it's real, right? Um, I, want, I want to give you one that I learned, Sietlichkeit. Sietlichkeit. And this is the word for the moral obligation that you have to the, to the group or society of which you are a part. So think of it like um, a Sietlichkeit would, would, would be a little bit like... Uh, as a blank person, as an American, as a Christian, as a whatever group I'm a part of, I have an obligation to perform a certain way, to act a certain way. This is the way I live up to my responsibilities in the society. It's the, it's, it's, so, so those moral obligations that come with being a Christian, American, whatever it is, uh, this is the Sietlichkeit. And the reason I think this, this series will be a bit challenging is because America comes with a set of, of those kind of things of you should believe these things, you should think these things, this is kind of the, the, the culture, the, the, the mood of the day, and, and this is the obligations that you have as an American, you should, you should champion these causes. And some of the stuff we're going to read and look at is going to push against those things. And, and, and there's this moment where like, okay, am I American first? Am I a follower of Jesus? And, and what does God have to say about this? And so it's going to push against all that stuff. And, and I, I think it's going to be good for us and, and, and challenging. So the book of Revelation is, um, if you've not read it, it, it can be, um, I don't know, freaking terrifying. Uh, it, it, it's um, because it, it, it's actually written, um, uh, interpreting the Bible correctly is, is doable, 
And, and, and you have to understand genres, though. When you read poetry, you know what you're getting with poetry, right? You don't expect everything to be literal, right? When you read history, that's a different thing. Okay, this is a history book. Okay, this is poetry. This, these are letters. I'm reading mail, that kind of thing. Um, the book of Revelation is Jewish apocalyptic literature. We don't have that genre anymore, so we're, we're reading something that's really outside of our normal thing. And if, and if you just opened up the book of Revelation, tried to go beginning to end, you're like, whoa, this is, this is intense. There's like angels and bowls of wrath and, 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 and like crazy stuff and these beasts with multiple heads and like all this imagery and symbolism. It's, it's really a little complicated. Um, but the easiest part of it is probably the part that we're going to get into right here at the beginning of the book, where it's basically something we can understand. Letters are written from God. He's passing on this letter through a guy named John. John was the uh, apostle, follower of Jesus, one of, the, one of the original close followers of Jesus. He lives a long time, lives to be an old man, and he is exiled. He's, he's helped, um, he's sort of like a bishop in a sense over a group of churches in Western what was called Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. He was there, and he's exiled to an island off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. I'll show it to you on, on a map up here. So uh, this is a real primitive map, but um, th this is modern-day Turkey. Uh, if, you, if you go all the way to the direct north of the map, not labeled, but you see a little like triangle of water, that would be Istanbul. So to put it in perspective, and then you come south from there, Smyrna on the far west edge there is the modern city of Izmir in, in Turkey. And then on the bottom, the bottom there on the, on the sort of the southwest coast in the Aegean Sea is the island of Patmos. John is writing a letter, uh, the, the book of Revelation, and he's writing letters to the churches that are in all of those towns that you see there in the middle, uh, sort of the western edge of Turkey. Um, he's he's going to write a letter. And the first one we're going to look at is the one to Ephesus that Abby just read to you. Um, Ephesus is, is basically John's home church. Uh, it, it is where he would have based out of... Um, it, it's actually really interesting. The church at Ephesus was maybe one of the strongest led churches in the history of Christianity because the church was started by Paul, who lived there for a few years and planted the church and got it going. Uh, Ephesus is a really important city in, in the ancient world, behind Rome. It's one of the larger cities and an impressive city. And the church was led by, started by Paul, led by Timothy, of which there are a couple letters in the New Testament written to him. So you've got a, a strong leader, his protege, Timothy, leading the church as a pastor. Um, John would be one of the elders and not one of the other leaders in the church. So you've got someone who is directly with Jesus as a leader in the church. Uh, John took care of Jesus' mother, Mary. You've probably heard of Mary, so she would have been there. If you go, if you go there today, they have this place that's like this was Mary's house. So, it, uh, so you've got all of these really key leaders in this church. And by the time this letter is written that we're going to read, uh, the church has been around for about forty years. So it got off to like the best start imaginable with the strongest leadership team you could have. And then um, over the course of 40 years, you see some things start to come up and some problems that they start to have. And so this letter is written um, to them. And, and so we'll start it in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, I just want to read to you again, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Um, you know, I was, I was sort of looking at this verse. I was like, okay, seven stars, lampstands, what does that mean? Well, the good thing is in Revelation 1, it tells you exactly what that means. If you were to back up and look in the chapter before, it, it says, the one who walks among the seven lampstands, that's Jesus. 
the seven lampstands represent these seven churches. So the idea of being a light in the city and a light of the world, a, a beacon of light, that kind of thing, that, that these seven churches are these seven lampstands. And Jesus says, hold the seven stars. Uh, the stars are angels. So two interpretations of angels. One, it could be a guardian angel, literally an angelic being that is assigned to each of these churches so that a church has a guardian angel. That's a cool idea. I didn't... I, I did not think in planting church there would be an Area 10 angel, but there may be one here right now. Cool. Uh, it, it can also mean like messenger. It could mean like a pastor over the church. But most of the scholars seem to think this is talking about literally an angel of some sort. So uh, Jesus, who has the power, who is walking amongst the churches, so his presence is there. He holds the angels, the church, and he's walking amongst these churches, these seven golden lampstands. That's what it's saying. The symbolism in Revelation can really throw you off, but that one is easier than other ones that come up later in the book. Um, This is what he tells them. This is what he says to this church at Ephesus. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. All right, this is the good stuff at the church of Ephesus. Uh, Paul tells, uh, I'm sorry, the, Jesus tells them, as he writes this letter to them, Jesus tells them, uh, hey, there, there, are, there are good things going on with you guys, and, I'm, and, I'm, and you'll see this kind of pattern where he'll point out some good things and then some not so good things going on in these letters. Um, here's the good things. And these good things, I, I, want, I want to frame this in a way so we understand that they, they might, even the good things might rub up against our culture a little bit. Like, the, the number one thing I noticed as I was reading through that of what is good about this church is, is their intolerance. This church was intolerant. Um, and you go, wait a second, that goes against the seatly kite of our culture. This, we're, we're not, we, are, we are told in our culture as a pluralistic society where everybody needs to get along, what we are told is that we're supposed to be tolerant. Like that is our, our maybe one of our greatest virtues or our most important virtues. And, and I think there is value to it. But I also think G.K. Chesterton, an English writer from 100 years ago, he said, Tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. Tolerance is where you go when you don't stand for anything. You just go, well, let's just be tolerant. It's like, no, how about you stand for something? Actually have convictions. Um, and so uh, Ephesus is, is being told that, that, the, that Jesus tells them, uh, you're being intolerant, and that's actually a good thing. Now, what are they being intolerant of? Well, he, he, he names it there in the letter. He says they're intolerant of people who are evil. Seems like a good idea. People doing evil things. We should not tolerate them continuing to do evil things. Uh, you're intolerant of a group called the Nicolaitans that kind of show up later. We don't need to sidebar with a bunch of that, but there's a group that he calls out by name for people to read for the rest of history. You know, it's like, he's like, I'm going to, John, John was probably like, you really want me to name them? It's like, oh yeah, write, write those fools down. Write their names down. There are people thousands of years are going to read this. And I want everyone to know what they were like. So there's a group. He's like, you're, you're not tolerant of them. And you're not tolerant of people who are claiming to be apostles but are not. So there's people falsely claiming to be something that they're not within the church. And so they are intolerant of those things. Let me, let me make a quick case for intolerance which sounds like 
something a pastor shouldn't be doing, but it also sounds like, well, yeah, the church, you know, church leader, you're going to be intolerant. Okay, like that sounds like something Americans would think would be happening in churches all over the country. We all come to church to learn how to be more intolerant. Um, but, but there's something to it. There, there's something to um, identifying evil and saying, I'm not going to put up with even a little bit of that personally. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go with that. And as a, as a church, to, as a culture to go like, man, this is not okay and we can't just, it just can't be a free-for-all. Like we need to address some things. I had a, a coach years ago, 2014, I hired a coach and I said, help me get my head straight and, and help me be better, you know. And, and, um, and he said, okay, homework this week. I want you to write down a list of 20 things you are tolerating now, if I asked you right now, write down a list of 20 things you're tolerating, you'd be like, what? I don't, I don't know. That's tricky, right? So I, st- I started writing, and it was like, I'm tolerating the leaky faucet in our bathroom. I'm tolerating being 20 pounds overweight. I'm tolerating, you know, not eating right. I'm tolerating wanting to read but not actually reading each day. I'm like, so I would start listing things, and I got like 10 things. And I felt pretty good. I'm like, that's probably good enough. He said 20, but I'll just do 10 of things I'm tolerating. And so I gave him the list. And I'm like, and he's like, oh, this is really good. He goes, why didn't you do 20? I was like, yeah, I could only think of like 10. And he's like, well, I'll tell you something you're tolerating. You're tolerating only doing assignments halfway. I'm like, oh. And he's like, where else do you do that in your life? I'm like, why do I pay you for this? I don't, I did not ask for this, sir. Um, no, but in, in, that, in that case then, tolerance is not great. Like you're putting up with things you shouldn't put up with. You should actually be intolerant and like not put up with that stuff. Uh, that's, that's actually a good thing. If you want to change, if you want to grow, don't tolerate the bad stuff, right? Quit putting up with it. Like make some change, make, make a move, do something different. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the challenge. But it goes directly at it. The, the, the church at Ephesus was not tolerating what is evil. So it's, it's not just like they're tolerating being a little bit overweight or whatever, whatever safe thing you, I, I might put on that list, right? They're, they're not tolerating evil. Um, and that's, that's tricky because for us, what is evil? Like, you probably don't think that way much, but in America, as an American... What would you say is truly evil? You don't have to say it out loud because you're going to offend someone on a different political party in the room or something. But like, but something's evil, right? And, and maybe you don't think in those terms. You don't think in good and evil. But like, aren't there some things that are really, really bad? <laughs> be, and not just like, oh, that's not my preference. But you would be like, that shouldn't be anybody's preference. Right? There are things like that. And, and we might call them evil. If someone opens fire on a, uh, with a gun on a crowded room of people, that's not just like, whoops. That's not like they are not nice. And that doesn't, I don't think anybody would think that's something we should tolerate. Like, oh, I think it's fine. No, we would go, that's super broken. Whatever word you want to put on it, that is sinful, that is evil, that is wicked, that is dark. And so it would be easy for us to agree and go, don't tolerate like that. But after that, as, as, as a li- on our list, what, what is evil? Have you ever thought about it? Like, could you say right now, this is what is evil in society? 
be really interesting to see what, what the list would be. I, I was talking to a, a family recently that was struggling with like the idea of the teachings around gender ideology that is happening and being promoted in school. So with, with young children, young children talking about um, some pretty significant gender stuff and, and, and really promoting an agenda there. And so is that compassionate for children or is that evil? Well, it depends on kind of how you would look at it. And is that something we should tolerate or participate in? And, and you could start going through the list, right? The, the challenge for us is, is so many of them sound political when they just may be moral or ethical things that we need to think through. And usually we get caught in this trap of, well, evil is what the people in the other political party believe and do. They think those things, therefore, they, they're into the evil stuff. I, my platform, my side, my viewpoint is the good one. They're the bad one. And, and what's worse is because we don't disagree well, and I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not getting better at it. Um, we start believing that when we disagree, it's because you're evil and I'm good. Right? I'm not evil. No one thinks I'm the evil one. You're the evil one, and, and, and that's not good. When we move from... Um, behavior as evil and we move to, well, no, just you as a person is evil and your whole group of people is evil. Historically, that goes very badly for cultures when you start taking a group of people and saying everyone who is like this is not just wrong, but they're evil. So there's some challenges. Where are we drawing those lines? And, And the question would be, how would you even draw the lines? Um, so we have to be careful. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some behaviors, some things that people do that are pretty evil. And the church at Ephesus is commended for calling it out and not tolerating that. They do, they do not, as, as a previous generation might have said, they do not suffer fools. Um, they're not doing it. So that's number one, that, that's a good thing in that church. And the second thing is that they have a high level of perseverance. Um, they're, they're, they're standing, they're bearing up under a lot of pressure and standing for their faith, even when it's unpopular. Um, I think Christianity in the West, like if you go to the global South right now or some spots of the Far East or whatever, Christianity is growing through parts of Africa, China. Um, but if you look at the West and Europe, America, um, Christianity is um, unpopular, not as unpopular as it could be, okay? We're not persecuted like Egyptians or people in Iran or... Um, but but there's, there's an uh, there, there's a unpopular vibe around people of faith, around Christianity, because um, we believe different things from the culture. That was more true in Ephesus than even maybe than it is for us now. At least we have a little bit of cultural wind at our back. Uh, it, it, the church at Ephesus, man... If you became a Christian in the Roman Empire, let's just take one category, and I've, I've mentioned this before, uh, but if you take one category like sexuality and marriage, um, in, the, in the Roman Empire, the average Roman male, let's say, would have a wife and would have a mistress and would have like a sex slave, which would be a male or female younger, that they, that, that they would have for all these reasons. And then in Ephesus, you have um, one of the, wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis or Diana, and the way you worship at the temple is to visit a temple prostitute. So not only did you have 
a lot of sexual things going on outside of your marriage. Um, you had, even your religious worship involved sex with a prostitute. That is, it's, it's hard to imagine a society that goes like, yeah, this sounds like a really good idea. Like, let, and, it, and it's maybe hard for us to imagine that, or that sounds so foreign to us, actually because Christianity took a hold in the culture and changed it. This idea of a man and a woman, and that's it, and you're married together till death do you part, like, that, that's got Judeo-Christian roots. That is not, that is not how it's rock, the rock and Roman culture. And so for the Christians in Ephesus to be like, you know what, I'm not going to share my spouse with other people. Like, it's just going to be us. That's extremely unpopular in that culture. And not just like, oh, you guys are a little weird. But it moves to, you guys are bad. You're wrong. You're evil for doing this. So... When he says you've withstood pressure and you're bearing up under it in Ephesus, um, it's real. And, and they, had to, they, they, they had a lot that they had to stand um, un, under and, and, and put up with. And that's just one example. I mean, you could look at how they approached poverty or race or, um, you know, j- just a bunch of different topics that the Christians were weird and different in the way they handled that stuff uh, against the Roman culture. Um, they had, Ephesus had like this dark magic kind of stuff going on in the city and, and, and the Christians didn't participate in that kind of stuff. It was, it was pretty big. Um, so that's the good of the church at Ephesus. But, uh, and this is where the love that we talked about at the beginning, things you love and like you've lost it. This is where the church at Ephesus was going. Revelation chapter two, verse four, it says this, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost that loving feeling, right? Like basically is what he's saying. Like you, you were into God, you loved him, now you don't. Now that might look like you're just going through the motions, you're, you're, you're there but your heart's not engaged, your mind's there maybe, you're kind of in it but you're not really in it. And you know the difference, right? You felt that. Maybe with the relationship with God, but also with your relationship with other people where you're in it, but you're not really in it. Like, I'm in the room with you. My, I'll give you my ears. I'll listen, but my heart is not actually engaged. And this is a big deal because um, what God actually wants from us is our hearts. If you're cynical about church, you could say, no, I've been to church and I know what God wants for us, from us is to get our acts together. What God wants from us is our money, you know, and, and you could go down the list and say, oh, you know, God, the, all these things. When you boil it down, God wants to be in a loving relationship with his creation. He wants our hearts engaged. And so the accusation that this church, their heart's not in it, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It, yeah, you, you can go through the motions and you can sing the song and pray the prayer and give generously and do the thing, but your heart has to be um, engaged. Uh, what uh, St. Augustine said, Christ is, Christ is not valued at all unless he's valued above all, unless he gets that ultimate place in our hearts. Um, there are periods where we love him. There's periods where in our love for God, we are disciplined, we are 
praying and, and reading, and we just feel dialed in. And, and, and I know I'm saying love, and I'm putting discipline in with it, but I, I think those things are related. Love is not just a feeling. There's behavior attached to that. And so there are periods of our lives that we're good. We're, we're doing it. We're, we're engaged. Um, and then there's periods that we, that we fall away. So how do we rekindle the love? How do you bring it back when you've lost it? I, what I want to tell you, I think um, I used to do a sermon for weddings from this text because I think what the advice I'm about to give you about rekindling our love for God also is a, applies to marriage as well or relationships as well. Um, but, I, but I think it's valuable for us to look at it here. Revelation 2, verse 5. Listen to what he said. This is what he tells them. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, if lampstand's representing the church, he's like, we're going we're gonna to shut it down, guys. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's good. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to you to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, so he, there's two things here, and then we're done. Number one, remember from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. Um, there are people who bring up their past, and they do it to constantly revel in it. Oh, remember the good days we had? Man, it was crazy back then. Remember what we used to do? At some point here, then they insert something like Virginia Tech, or there's some word that comes next. They're like, well, it was wild. We did this. Yeah, whatever. Okay, I get it. Um, it's one thing to sort of like say, this is where I was at, but it's another thing to, to remember your past in the sense of, and God, God brought me to something better. God has saved me. People who have gone through substance abuse, like Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that, I find um, often they are some of the most humble and gracious people because they know from where they have fallen. They know they took that thing as far as that will go and they know how empty that ended up, and they know that God has saved them. This is the remembrance that, that we're trying to get at here to the church at Ephesus. He goes, man, you guys, if you, want, if you want to get the love back, remember what it was like. Remember what God has done in your life. This is why we, we gather as a church constantly to remember. It's why we why you journal, you write things down, you can notice where God has been at work over the years. Um, remember where God has come, has brought you, and you'll be a grateful, humble person. The church at Ephesus, if you're going to go back and remember what had happened, man, 40 years prior to this letter, uh, when Paul goes to town and is teaching in, in the city, um, there were people who were participating in what is called, the, like, the dark arts, which goes very Harry Potter very quickly. I understand that. Um, there's magic and, and, and stuff that's, that's in that culture, very spiritual, sort of occult kind of thing. And in the book of Acts, it records that as the church of Ephesus was started, people, because of their love for God, they, they took all their like magic books and stuff and they just burnt everything. There was this big fire. And like there's a passion to that, of like, man, I want to get this right and I want to know God and I, and I need to just burn the past. I need to burn this sucker down because it was not good. Um, and, and the reminder here from Jesus is, hey, don't forget what life was like before you knew me. Um, and so we, one way is we rekindle the love is to, to, re, to remember how far we've come or how far we had fallen before. Um, and then the second thing he says in this letter is, is repent and do the things you did at first. 
So repentance, this idea of, of sort of doing a 180 or turning completely away from something, uh, that's a word you use in church a lot, in Christian circles, repentance. You need to repent. You need to change your ways, change your mind, change your behavior. Um, I, I do think there's a little bit of a synonym for it in our culture because American culture as a whole doesn't talk about repentance typically. Um, but I think there's a, a little bit of a synonym for it, and I'm going to say this word, and, you, and some of y'all are going to get triggered immediately. So this, this word comes with a trigger warning. But I think, there's a, I think there's something similar to repentance in the word woke. Because I think when we say woke, what we mean is, like, waking up. Like, I, I wasn't aware, but now I'm aware. And the implication is not that just that you know, but the implication is when you know better, you do better. So I'm awake to this reality. I didn't know this was the way something is, to be it you know, race or, or poverty or whatever, um, just things going on in society. I'm awakened to it, and now I, I'm responsible to do something different. Well, that's repentance in a lot of ways. That's, that's very similar to the, this idea of you change your mind, repentance, you change your mind, and then you're also going to change your behavior. It's not just I think differently, but I'm going to actually walk this out and do something uh, differently. It, it, it starts in the mind when we wake up to sin. And there are examples where repentance can look like, for you, it might look like, man, I need to repent in the way I talk to my kids. I always speak with anger. It's not good. I need to repent in things I've been looking at online because it's inappropriate, right? I, 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 this is not the way I should look at people. I need to repent of how I talked about a coworker the other day because I, I, I'm too quick to pass on gossip, that kind of thing. I need to repent in, in how I'm stealing time from my company because I'm lazy and I'm doing other things when I should be doing work. Like, and I'm tempted here to just keep going and give you examples of what repentance might look like in your life. But here's the thing. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just a guy up here, and I've got my struggles and things I'm working through, and I need to repent too. I've been a Christian for decades, and repentance isn't something I just did back then. It's still something to do now. And so maybe the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Jesus and you've given your life to him, maybe the Holy Spirit is telling you now, this is it. This is the thing that you need to repent of. The Holy Spirit lives in you and he whispers to your conscience. And you have to listen to that voice when he does. Because what happens is, and I think this is how your love grows cold, like, they, like he's talking about in Revelation. What happens is, if the Holy Spirit whispers to your conscience and says, this is the thing in your life, you need to pay attention to this, you need to change this, if you hear that voice and you ignore it, you eventually just won't hear it anymore. This is how the love grows cold. This is how we get into this place. That idea actually resonates with the city of Ephesus in a, in a weird sort of way. Um, I had the opportunity to go. There's several of us from the church went to Turkey uh, in June, and we shot footage at five of these seven churches of Revelation in, in these towns. Ephesus is the largest archaeological site in the world, so there was a lot to see at Ephesus. Um, 
we're going to show you, I just want to show you here in a second, uh, just a one-minute clip of some of the things that we saw. Uh, this one's a little different because Ephesus is so crowded compared to some of the other ones you'll see in the other videos we do. Um, it's so crowded, I, I kind of had to do it selfie style. And um, I'm also wearing sunglasses, which is probably a no-no for on-camera work, but uh, it was super bright there and there's like no trees and it's like way hot. So that's why. Um, but I want you to see uh, a little bit of, of, of some, I give you a sense of Ephesus. And, and specifically, I want you to hear uh, what we're talking about because uh, Sam Morgan here at our church wrote some scripts for us based on Revelation and based on these locations. And so uh, check this out. The lifeblood of Ephesus was its world-famous port, but the port was beginning to silt up even before Paul arrived here. The government tried to stop this silting process but only made it much worse. The heart of the city was slowly filling up with mud. Jesus, too, warns his church in Ephesus that despite all the good works they were doing, their hearts, too, were filling up with mud. He says they'd lost their first love and grown stale. Jesus demands repentance and a return to the things they did at first, or the church would fade away with a whimper, despite all the good fights they had fought. History records that Ephesus's harbor could ultimately not be saved. However, the church at Ephesus, at least for a generation, did dredge all the mud out of their hearts and fill it up with the Spirit of God. The harbor slowly filling up, and the reason Ephesus is an archaeological dig that just sort of feels like inland is because there's just no water there anymore. And in the ancient world, if you don't have water access, you don't have much to go on as a city. And it was just little by little. It's not a dramatic thing. It's just it happens slowly. And that's such a good picture for our love growing cold. I've seen this in marriage. You, you have a fight, and one person goes, oh, I guess I can't talk about that anymore with you. And they close off that piece of their heart. And another thing comes up and you have conflict and it's like, well, I guess that's not okay. And you close off a piece of their heart. And one day, um, a couple will come to me and say, we're going to get a divorce. And I'm like, but didn't you love each other and all that? And it's like, there's nothing left. It's all been closed one little compartment at a time until they're cold towards the other person. And this is, this is what happens to us. And I, and I see the same thing where people lose their love for God. Um, they, they, they have doubts, sure. Intellectual doubts, honest doubts, I get that. They have challenges. Man, this is hard. I have pain. I got this thing going on. I don't know if I want to believe in a God who would allow me to go through this. Like, I, I understand that. But often what I see is that people turn away from God because of their own sins. Like, I know people that I've seen walk away from God, and they will do it because they're saying it's an intellectual problem. Oh, I don't believe that God's this, and I don't like that the church teaches this, and I don't know, and I don't like this in Scripture, and like, it sounds like intellectual doubts. That doesn't seem right to me. That's wrong. That's bad. Whatever. It sounds like that. But I know, but some of these people, I know their story, and I'm like, yeah, but actually, like, you've got all these things going on that you want to do. And like the church God thing's just way in your way. Like it just stands in the way. It, it's one of the things in your life that might say to you, hey, maybe you should stop doing that. Like that's not loving God. And so, and this happens for a lot of us. It, it, it's, it's the sin in our hearts. That it's not the intellectual doubts. It's the sin in our hearts that makes us grow cold. And so the advice to the church at Ephesus is good. Don't let that silt build up in your heart. 
You've got to rekindle the love. Go back to, remember, remember, what, remember how far you've fallen. Maybe you can think about, hey, what has God saved me from? And do the things you did at first, the things you first fell in love with God and got in that relationship. Maybe pick that stuff up again and repent. Walk away from the sins that, that, have, that have gotten you. So that's my question for you. How has God helped you in the past? Can you remember? And two, what do you need to repent of today? You do those things, and I think you'll start to see the love being rekindled. Let's pray. God, there's um, encouraging things in this letter, and there's warnings, and it's here for all of us. I, I'm, I'm not, I've not arrived on all of these things either, and, and there's just challenges here. And so, God, I, I pray you help us to really examine our lives and go, what do I need to repent of? Where do I need to walk a different road than the one I've been on? Um, God, thank you for the example at Ephesus that uh, even a church with the strongest leadership can, can drift. And God, I pray for a fervor and, and a fire in this church that in difficult times, in confusing circumstances in the world and in our culture, we will, we will stand together and we will uh, stand for truth and grace and, and lovingly point people to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.